From the Inspiration Offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiration. Today, we're going to be speaking with Marilene Daviad-Lewitt, who is the Director of Business Development for Transformative Technologies at Black & Veatch. With me as usual in the studio is Patrick Malloy. Patrick, how are you? I'm well, Andrew. How are you? And on the phone from London is Chris Jackson. Chris, how are you doing? As of two hours later from our last recording, all pretty good, Andrew. It's been quite a long time since we've spoken, guys. Full disclosure to our listeners, we did the Toyota interview about two hours ago with Craig Scott, and now we're going to be hopping on the line with Black and Beach, uh, but it will be released, what, probably a week or so afterwards after the uh, Toyota interview. All of our references will be horribly dated, and I won't be able to ask about Megxit anymore next time you hear from us. Or maybe you'll have more questions. Or maybe questions. you'll have more to say. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. I don't think I'll shed a tear if uh, if that's not a conversation topic again, Andrew. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> Uh, but there's there's potential that it could really ramp up. So, you know, keep that in mind, Chris. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. So... Uh, we do have to get Marilene on the line. I guess we're all going a little bit stir-crazy here, apparently. Black & Beach, guys, one of the largest en- engineering firms in the world. Pretty well-known in North America. I assume very well-known in Europe as well. Yeah, Chris? Yeah, although weirdly, when uh, when someone first mentioned Black & Beach to me, I had um, a sort of hardware store in my head, and then someone told me I was thinking of Black & Decker, Black so and Decker. it tells you how well aware I am in the UK. Um, I'm sure Marilene yeah, will be no, delighted I mean, to hear there's a, a cross-branding yeah. issue. Yeah, no, I mean, to be fair, though, um, we actually had a chance to meet Marilene and the team from Black & Veatch at EVS Whistler, um, the Inspiration hosted in, what was it, November? It was December last year. That was November. It was November last year, gosh, yeah. So uh, it was really, really nice. And unfortunately, at the time, um, you know, as all things happen with these conferences, we uh, we missed the chance to do the the live episode there. So uh, it's actually kind of nice. It gives us a good excuse to catch up with Marilene after uh, the panel that I did with her and Nicholas Pocard and Patrick and uh, the team from HTEC. So it'll be really nice to kind of get her perspective on on things and kind of see where uh, 2020 has started for them. Yeah, no, I think it'll be a good conversation. Should we uh, try and get her on the line, guys? Hey, Andrew. Hi, Marilene. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Yourself? Hey, Marilene. Good to see you, or good to hear you again. All things well? Yeah, I'm fine, but I broke my foot over the weekend on a bad fall. So. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry to hear I'm, that. I'm stuck... Uh, Stuck at home. Well, we appreciate you making the time to join us. <laughs> Sorry to hear it's that. It's fine. Well, as long as I'm not walking around, I'm good. <laughs> well, then podcasting seems like a good fit then. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Marilyn. We really appreciate it. You know, we've obviously been trying to do this for a while, so we're, we're really looking yeah. forward to it. And thank you for making the time. Okay. I think many of our listeners are probably more than familiar with Black & Veatch, but uh, if you could maybe give us a quick uh, background on a little bit of Black & Veatch's involvement in the hydrogen world and a little bit of background about yourself, uh, that would be a wonderful way to start out. Okay, very good. So, hello, everyone, and thank you for inviting uh, Black and & Veatch and myself to your podcast and uh, Inspiratia. We appreciate it. Regarding Black & Veatch, uh, we are very large engineering, permitting, and construction company uh, based in Kansas City, and we've been focusing the last, uh, I'm going to say, 30, 40 years in the energy field. So, you know, renewable energy and the water, telecom environment. 
and all about the expertise is building the infrastructure of any of those uh, segments of the market. Our company built about $3.2 billion per year. We are employee-owned company in the United States, and a large percentage of our activities are in North America, but we also have different activities. Asia and Middle East and Latin America is a strong market for us. Uh, not so much in Europe, except for the UK, just because there are many other good uh, engineering firms over there. <laughs> Black & Veatch has been uh, focusing a little bit more on transportation. I have uh, an expertise in uh, any type of clean technology related to transportation, electric transportation, of course. And uh, and the last couple of years, I've focused a little bit more on, on fuel cell technology and uh, hydrogen technology. And myself, I was before with Schneider Electric for the last uh, six years prior to Black & Veatch, managing the West Coast operation of uh, the EV, EV market development. And I'm based in the Bay Area of San Francisco. So, Merlin, wh- where does uh, Black & Veatch kind of see the most promise for, for hydrogen, both in terms of the, the kind of various sectors of direct application, but also in terms of infrastructure? Mm-hmm. We have these two divisions that are been currently uh, managing more the industrial manufacturing environment for hydrogen, which is our oil and gas industry. The gas industry has evolved, you know, transforming gas, distribution of gas, compression of gas. Uh, so that group of Black and Rich is definitely involved in more on the manufacturing side. And then for renewable group in energy, um, there's a lot of uh, new technology development in storage with fuel cells technology that are promising. And there's lots of needs in energy storage. So we're seeing uh, an increase of at least project they are not only you know fully uh, big development in the industry yet there's still uh, some pilots some demonstration project but it's growing uh, rapidly and then also of course in the production of hydrogen the goal is to to produce green hydrogen as much as possible that's why our, our renewable group is very involved and then our the division that I'm part of called uh, Transformative Technologies, we uh, we focus on um, any type of fuel cells uh, vehicles. So in the U.S. specifically, it started with the light-duty vehicle. The cars from that came on the market, especially in California, was Toyota, Honda, and Hyundai. And um, that's where the growth started. And what we see, of course, wonderful upcoming development is with the bus transit systems and with fuel cells and, of course, the fuel cells trucks. I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. I mean, obviously, um, there's a really kind of good high-level overview of some of the sort of areas that are interesting. Um, what I wanted to kind of go to is kind of some of the more specific uh, projects that Black & Veatch is currently working on. And, and maybe you can start by talking a little bit about the work that Black & Veatch have been doing with Sprint in North America, uh, as well as the work they're doing with First Element Fuel, and then maybe go from there if there's anything else that you think is uh, interesting for our listeners to know. Sure. So in a telecom environment, there's a, you know, lots of needs for storage of energy. There's challenges in peak demand, in demand response. So the hydrogen um, technology has been tested the last, I would say, almost 10 years. And uh, there's been some really good development side by side, market per market, um, depending on how much, you know, uh, the power cost was. And in some instances, usage of hydrogen would make sense, especially for, for storage and to, to manage peak demand. 
so there's been one application that we've been involved because uh, Sprint is a large client and we also build the towers for Sprint and we're involved in uh, 5G, for example, right now with Sprint. So in the telecom business, there's definitely a lot of needs for, for power to be able to equip the, the development of those new telecom technologies. And then on the uh, transportation side, started really about four years ago, we uh, did um, build the largest network uh, we have right now in the U.S. with First Element Fuel in California. We built uh, 19 stations throughout California to connect, of course, the main cities uh, um, of California going from south to north. And First Element Fuel was managing all the site acquisition. As you might know, there are usually um, installed in gas station environment or in um, in small retail market where, and convenience stores. And um, the model worked great for the gas stations because uh, the cars can be, you know, fueled in, in five minutes. Like the Toyota Mirai, for example, the first generation has been uh, a 300 miles range car and could fuel in five minutes. So it fits the model of the, the gas stations versus EV and EV charging. Uh, it takes longer, therefore it's not the adequate uh, market to build uh, this network. So that happened the last uh, three years. So we built 19. There's other stations, of course. So there's a total of 39 stations now in California that have been built also with uh, other companies, of course, beside us. And now we're just getting uh, entering the new generation of fuel cell stations. That's the one I can't speak too much about, the, the current development of them. But I would just mention that California Energy Commission has been, uh, you know, releasing solicitation and grants uh, to keep growing the network of stations that are needed. So the, the fuel cell cars have been really only in California so far in the U.S. market. Um, none, none of the states have access to those cars simply because they depend on the network. And then uh, we've also worked with a very large uh, gas company on the East Coast, and we've built uh, six stations so far uh, in Northeast region. And um, we do need to build more stations in order for Toyota, Honda, or Hyundai to launch their car and try, uh, you know, start to sell their cars on the East Coast. But they need a minimum threshold of station for the consumer to be comfortable, of course, to, to be able to fuel their cars. Those are larger station environment. A few of them, two out of the six have, are actual hubs where um, we have also storage for liquid hydrogen, larger storage of liquid hydrogen. One has an electrolyzer with, um, uh, that enable the production of, of hydrogen locally and on site. Quick follow up there, Marilyn. So, you know, you spoke about the number of stations that that can be been working on on the West Coast and on the East Coast. Uh, you talked about some that are using liquid hydrogen, some that are doing electrolysis. Uh, and most of the discussion was sort of passenger vehicle focused. Um, and then you sort of alluded to trucks coming up the line. So given the fact that you've worked on the range of different types of refueling stations with different types of storage solutions, and you're now moving from passenger vehicles to trucks, are there any kind of lessons learned around the challenges in building hydrogen refueling stations that you can share with our audience and whether you have any kind of um, views or any kind of observations about where it makes sense to use cryogenic hydrogen as opposed to pressurized and where electrolysis in the US market is kind of making sense. Just given that you've got that range of experience, mm -hmm. I think it'd be really interesting to give our listeners a bit of a flavor. 
Yep, sure. And also, let's not forget the buses. The buses market is growing. The fuel cells buses are coming in the market now. So uh, some hubs are being built. So I would say the main challenge in this industry is the actual real estate. You need a certain amount of space, right, in the launch of uh, hydrogen stations. You need the um, space if it's uh, only light vehicle filling stations, but if it includes buses or tomorrow's trucks, uh, you need, you know, much larger areas. So uh, that's why in many instances so far in California, we don't even have electrolyzers on site. Even ideally, you know, we should have some instead of trucking the hydrogen from point A to point B, if uh, we could produce locally, would be better. So that's one element. The real estate is a key component of this this industry. Of course, for longer range, you can go a little bit further away from the urban areas where you have more um, space, and then you can really build hubs. So hope and what we see on the market happening is um, uh, companies are envisioning those hubs where not only the cars could come in, but possibly buses and trucks down the line and being able to share the infrastructure. So I won't go into much detail on the technical side of it, but but in California in particular, um, just because there's so much of a push for clean technology and, and of course, low gas emission or no gas emission, that's the ideal uh, scenario where you would uh, build uh, infrastructure to also produce on-site hydrogen instead of distributing hydrogen with right now. Frankly, it's diesel trucks, so it's not that great. So uh, the need the need of local production is important. And uh, yeah. I yeah. love that just sort of like caveat that you're sort of saying, right? Well, today, obviously, it's not great. We're using diesel trucks to move hydrogen extracted from natural gas via SMR to refuel fuel cell vehicles, which obviously to a lot of our audience probably sounds not particularly good for the environment. Um, You know, obviously that's just like an interim step, but it is just for people to get their heads around. I don't think people are quite aware of that. Yeah. And it's a reality at the same time, you know, they're not driving a hundred miles to, to fill the station, the the herbs uh, to produce hydrogen are not too far from the urban environment, but, you know, we're still talking about 40, 40 or 50 miles. So uh, the goal is definitely to reduce uh, um, uh, those uh, transportation systems. On the other hand, uh, what we do really well in some states, not just in California, but wherever we have high capacity for renewable, the goal is to use the renewable um, into those hydrogen stations and herbs. Um, and simply because uh, it requires a lot of power per site to, um, you know, to work on the, the storage, the compression, and the distribution of hydrogen. So um, the the power is a key element. And uh, in California, since during the daytime we overproduce solar, for example, we have thirty percent of uh, of overproduction from like noon to 4 p.m. in the afternoon, and we actually cannot store right now all this uh, produce power. So we're actually wasting it. The goal is to use that green power uh, to, to, to bring it to the, uh, the hubs uh, that are need, needing um, power for, for the, the systems in place. And hopefully having enough on-site production that does require also lots of power like those electrolyzers do, 
um, and this way, you know, you, you make the best of the, the clean technology uh, as a full circle. And Marilyn, I want to follow up a little bit because we actually just got off of an interview with uh, Craig Scott over at uh, Toyota North America. I believe you know him. He heads up their fuel yes. cell vehicle uh, mm-hmm. efforts in North America. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about is how fuel cell electric vehicles and battery electric vehicles will be complementing each other and what the different rollouts and development levels look like in terms of charging infrastructure versus hydrogen refueling infrastructure. We know that, of course, Black & Veatch is heavily involved in building the infrastructure on both sides of that. And so I'm curious, uh, from your standpoint and from Black & Veatch's standpoint, see the two technologies complementing each other? Because we we reiterate a lot on this show that it's not one or the other. The two need to work together. And so from the infrastructure side, it's curious to hear how the engineers like uh, like you guys at Black & Veatch uh, see that relationship as well. I would say we absolutely concur with uh, Toyota's point of view and uh, Craig Scott's point of view. Um, those technologies are uh, complementary. They are not in competition. Um, what's very clear is, uh, you know, all the advancements of the uh, battery EVs been made the last couple of years. The price has gone down. The the cost to install the infrastructure for EVs is, I don't want to say minimal, but it's fairly cost efficient. And now we're, we're getting a parity on transportation between, um, you know, electric cars versus um, internal combustion cars. Uh, same thing is starting to happen with the buses. That's why electric buses are starting to to do well. Of course, as well as the hydrogen buses. Uh, but the cost for the infrastructure of hydrogen is still higher. So it's you know the typical cycle of new technology um, where the first couple of years the cost is pretty high and then um, it will stabilize and start to go down. And since the EV business is, I'm going to say, seven to ten years ahead of the hydrogen business, we already went through that curve and now we see the price that keep coming down, not just for the infrastructure, but also, as we all know, for the the batteries. Now, um, what's really interesting with the fuel cell technology is, um, as we all know, it's a high energy density system, which makes a lot of sense, not only for buses, but for any type of medium to heavy duty vehicles and especially trucks. And that's why, uh, of course, Toyota um, uh, has been um, investing in uh, Class A trucks. In, uh, with this technology, you, we're all familiar with Nikola Motors, who went full speed with the fuel cells trucks. But it doesn't mean that they, you know, in phase two, they might not develop EV trucks uh, that are perhaps Class 4, Class 6, where you don't need as much uh, weight load. But uh, at least for the heavy-duty vehicles, Hydrogen and fuel cell technology makes a lot of sense. So we see that trend also with, uh, in a, we don't talk too much about the, the marine world, but you have a company, for example, in San Francisco, you might have known about uh, the Golden Gate Zero Emission Marine. It's currently, um, it's public information, <laughs> so I can talk about it. Uh, they're currently building a hydrogen vessel that the fleet, uh, red and white fleet in San Francisco is going to be uh, using for the Bay Area transportation is definitely a demonstration project, but yet uh, makes a lot of sense for the the marine vessel industry. 
And of course, um, we know folks who are also working on the aviation with fuel cells. Uh, I was at uh, CES uh, just a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas and uh, Hyundai, among others, were presenting some uh, I want to call them large drones or small helicopter, whatever you want to name them. But it's definitely, you know, system for fuel cells aviation that will be transporting either goods or possibly uh, people. And same same idea, the batteries uh, are too heavy uh, for this type of uh, new vehicles. So uh, again, fuel cells technology makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I hear CES is becoming a bit more of a, a transportation uh, exp- expo rather than, than a consumer electronics show. That's right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's every year that's been growing. I've been there for eight years now. And then there's been growing the, yeah, the transportation sector greatly, um, also with autonomous cars, but that's another topic. So, so yeah, back to your question, absolutely complementary technology. We need them both. Uh, we're hoping one of the hurdles for hydrogen is really the cost right now. So, you know, lots of companies are working to decrease the cost of um, fuel cells technology, including infrastructure. But even, even what we build right now, uh, it's, it's, you know, substantially uh, expensive. I suppose it's a, a touch of a, a tangent, but it's it's related kind of focus. You you at Black and Veatch conducted a, a market survey of uh, transport groups and fleet operators to assess the the prospects of of EV adoption. Just wondering, kind of what what did you discover around the adoption potential, and and also you know you spoke a little bit about just uh, the cost barrier there. But what other kind of significant barriers did you did you discover, or or which ones are maybe the most prominent? Yeah, the cost parity is probably by far the number one challenge in, in this industry. So we, um, the fleet market looks at the total cost of owning and operating fleets, right? So what is very, very good and demonstrated in EV, but also it will be tomorrow in fuel sales, is, of course, the extreme, extreme low cost of the energy itself and the maintenance. The maintenance is greatly reduced. And then... Perhaps what we minimize sometimes is uh, the impact on the, uh, the quality of work that the, you know, even the drivers uh, are experiencing. If you drive um, an electric bus or an electric truck versus a, a diesel one, you know, the vibration are reduced greatly, the noise pollution, the, the, of course, the emission, the gas emission. Um, this market uh, is having a very hard time to hire new drivers. Who wants to be a driver of a diesel truck, right? It's a millenniums are. It's not something they're looking for. Let's put it this way. So I think it's really important to look at the whole picture. That it's economic uh, benefits, but also social benefits, and helping the industry to move forwards to um, better environment for transportation. So um, I would say that important criteria uh, in terms of barrier to adoption, really, uh, it's a range. Uh, the range is still a challenge for, for the EV industry. So not so much for the, the car environment now, because there are so many you know, charging stations uh, in some states, not all states, but in the states where there have been a good adoption of EVs. Um, the DC charging has been deployed and, and you can really go anywhere uh, in the States, for example, with an EV. But of course, again, the advantage of your sales is you get longer range. 
and uh, due to that high density. So, uh, you know, up to last year, the, the maximum range uh, for an EV was uh, 250 uh, miles with Tesla, but not too many people can afford a Tesla, right? So, and then you had the Bolt, Chevy Bolt is pretty good, 230 miles, uh, but you only have two or three models. There was almost no choices, and every, everybody else is dropping to 100, 120 miles range, so that's often too short, and that becomes more an urban type of vehicles versus a fuel cells technology, you know, from the beginning have been able to, to launch cars at 300 miles and plus. So, that makes a difference, and the fuel cells would be the barrier is a cost right now, but the EVs, I would say, mostly the range. And then, of course, everyone hopes to, to be able to charge with uh, renewable energy. That's a goal to be, you know, 100% clean um, at all level. I mean, you sort of mentioned that uh, cost parity was the greatest challenge for fuel cells. Um, you know, you spoke about fuel cell buses earlier. Um, there was a report by Deloitte and by Ballard uh, that came out in January saying that they saw total cost of ownership for fuel cell buses uh, reaching equivalent parity with battery electric and beating diesel after 2025. Uh, we also had Everfuel on the show earlier at the start of this year. Uh, where they were talking about uh, their work with the H2 bus consortium, which is already looking at getting near parity by 2023 in markets like the UK and Denmark. So, you know, uh, do those kind of numbers sound like numbers that make sense to you? Is it a very different, um, you know, does the picture look very different in North America and in the California market? Um, Maybe you can just kind of give your perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah, very good question. No, it, it sounds right on target in terms of uh, the date where we think we're going to reach, you know, a new threshold. Um, and there's, that, there's a simple reason for that is uh, um, in the U.S., we almost have no OEMs for the equipment of hydrogen uh, systems. So the OEMs are coming, uh, you know, from Canada and mostly from Europe, right? Uh, it's Lindy, NEL, um, and then there's some new ones coming from Japan now and, and soon from China. We're going to see uh, new OEMs coming in the market because they're already developing that technology as well um, in Japan and China and going pretty fast. So. Uh, because we depend on uh, the equipment from other countries, we're, we're seeing the same trend. Uh, Europe and Canada was, were definitely ahead of the U.S. Um, in that field, but the potential, of course, on the U.S. market is great for, for changing the, the paradigm of transportation. So all equipment that we receive um, are you know, coming from those countries. So that's why the timing uh, uh, sounds right. And then, of course, we depend greatly of the, um, the OEM. We talked about Toyota, uh, Nikola Motors, same thing. We depend on those OEMs to ramp up uh, on the market. And right now, you know, we're still in a pilot demonstration phase. Um, it's going fast, but uh, we won't be able to, to ramp up as long as the trucks are not coming in a lot scale on the market. So Marilyn, so, you, you, you kind of fed perfectly into my follow on question, which is, you know, if the US doesn't really have a lot of OEMs, uh, it's kind of been reliant on international providers. Um, but, you know, there's and also there's this need for automotive manufacturers to step in the space. And you spoke about Toyota and about Nikola. Um, what sort of role, you know, do you think that the government and the public sector should be playing 
in this stage of development to really kind of be encouraging and pushing the deployment of these technologies. Um, you know, specifically when you're talking about transport, I know you you mentioned a little bit some of the initiatives that California are doing. Do you think they're doing enough? Could they be doing more? Uh, and, you know, are there kind of uh, policies that you've seen in other markets that you think if they were adopted in the US could make a big difference to address some of these challenges you're talking about? Um, so I would say the general consensus in, in the hydrogen industry that the government is not doing enough. Uh, um, they've done a fantastic, you know, public program and incentive for the last 10 years with the EV industry. It has been successful. You know, in any market, you do need to build infrastructure in order to, to see the adoption rising uh, rapidly. I think in the U.S., the government and the states have done a really good job with the releasing budget for those incentives. What we're seeing right now, so uh, as a parallel, I think we need exactly the same for the for the hydrogen business, and, and it has not happened so far. I think the the ratio. I feel like saying, "Don't quote me on it," but if we're on life, I'm stuck. Uh, <laughs> I think the ratio is like. Uh, 10% goes to um, to the fuel cells technology versus, you know, 80% to steel electric uh, technology and then another 10% for other technologies. So this needs to be balanced, uh, of course, greatly. At the same time, the government also check carefully, you know, what is the state of the technology. And when we talk too much about pilots and research and not being ready for prime time on the market, then they are a little bit shy. They say, well, the technology is not ready, so we're going to wait for another year or two uh, to make sure that we can um, have good programs to use this budget that are being uh, allocated. So, it, of course, it's a little bit of a catch-22, but we've made great pro- progress in the fuel cells technology. Um, and I, I'm going to say again, sorry to quote California so much, but California is a good example, maybe the only state so far in the U.S., that uh, did invest substantially into the hydrogen market, especially with the California Energy Commission. And that's why we're currently seeing, you know, an increase of uh, build of uh, hubs and stations in California. And um, it incentivized the OEMs to build faster the, uh, than the buses and the trucks or to deliver as fast as they can because the market is ready now. So very important factor for the adoptions, uh, no question. And uh, we'll probably need to do more, but we need to do more in other states of the U.S. Well, Marilene, we've enjoyed catching up with you so much that we've already run over <laughs> run over the time we told you we would take from you. So I think uh, I speak for us all when I say thank you so much for making the time, especially uh, given the <laughs> foot injury. I hope you hope you recover soon. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And um, have a good day. All right, guys. Well solidified as one of my favorite people in the hydrogen world to speak with <laughs> but uh yeah, so what did you guys think well andrew i think i think you should explain why <laughs> she's the only one who makes it digestible for someone with as simple a mind as myself oh, she's yeah. good at messaging oh. hadrick what about you what's your take yeah like like i think the following on from the conversation we had earlier with with toyota you're you're seeing the process going in behind it, the engineering, planning, the the understanding of how these systems work, what these structures look like, and uh, generally it's just really informative. And uh, as as Andrew quite rightly says, uh, Marlene tells a tells a great story and and gives an awful lot of of color and depth to 
what can sometimes be a, a somewhat high-level, kind of broad brushstroke overview that, that is the nature of trying to communicate very, very complex systems. So that was fun. I enjoyed that. Well, I think Black and Beach gives a good, you know, it's an interesting perspective. And maybe it's a little bit fresh for us since we literally just got off a call with Toyota uh, two or three hours ago. Uh, but it's very interesting to have that conversation back to back, right? And I think it, it makes an interesting narrative in the episodes as well, which is you talk to the OEM side who Toyota, obviously, given their size and market share and their presence and their name, they do. And their their backing of fuel cell electric vehicles as well as now battery electric vehicles. And then hearing from the other side of that exact same equation, though, right? The inverse, the the infrastructure side, uh, Black and Veatch doing both the fuel cell, the hydrogen refueling infrastructure and the charging infrastructure on bigger scale across uh, huge markets. I think it's really interesting to hear to hear how they complement each other and how they both talk about the markets. You know, Toyota was saying their play makes no sense until there's uh, hydrogen refueling infrastructure in place. So, you know, people like Black and Beach, those are the ones who are going to be doing that, the engineering firms. So I thought it was really interesting. I think one thing that's fascinating here as well to note is that, you know, having had Everfuel on the show, uh, and I think uh, Marilyn noted this brilliantly, is this feature that is quite unique to the U.S. market, which is that, as she put it, there is no real large scale U.S. OEM for electrolysis, right? And it is interesting then to note that electrolysis on site is not really a feature of the hydrogen mobility market in the US. It obviously is a big part of the plan for Nikola when they start rolling out fuel cell trucks, and that's part of their partnership with Nell. Um, but it really hasn't been a big feature. And and that's quite unusual because if you look at whatever fuel is looking at in Europe, it is a lot it is mostly to my knowledge on site production through electrolysis. I believe Again, similar case in the UK, I think the overwhelming majority, over 80% of stations are on-site electrolysis. Not that there are that many of them, but again, mostly on-site electrolysis. In Canada and British Columbia, I think the two or three that are there are also all electrolysis. You know, in, in China, it's slightly different. Malaysia is a bit mixed, but you know, it is just kind of an interesting feature of it. And I guess the other thing that was interesting to me was her talking about real estate challenges being a consideration for whether you do on-site electrolysis or not. Um, you know, I think maybe naively as a Brit, you sometimes get these impressions that the U.S. is such a vast country that land probably isn't a challenge. But obviously in California, I guess, filing a lot of real estate where you can put down large scale electrolysis that is deployed in a way that's safe in case there's some kind of instance and that also can do the refueling isn't all that easy in a place that's convenient for drivers. And so, you know, actually the relative advantages of being able to transport it in so that you don't take up as much real estate. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting observation. I wonder whether we will start to see similar considerations coming into markets in Europe. I wonder actually on that point, uh, I wonder guys, do either of you have an idea of what on-site production, what kind of geographic footprint we're talking about for, I know obviously it would depend on the size of the refueling station, the amount of hydrogen you need to produce, so on and so forth. I understand all that, but for a general uh, idea, what kind of footprint are we looking at? Um, um, well, I mean, I, again, I think, I think, yeah, go ahead. So part of this, part of this is going to slightly tangential kind of point on this as well. But like, are you doing on-site energy generation as well, or are you taking your energy from the grid? Right. In which case, now you're either building a couple of wind turbines or a few wind turbines, or you're building solar farm on top, right? So, right. Mm, y- yeah. That's that's a bit of a challenge. I think 
I think the Nicola footprint, and Chris, correct me here if I if I misspeak, but I think it's an eight ton a day facility. Is is the kind of upper end? I think that's about seventeen to twenty megawatts worth of electrolyzers, approximately. Um, that obviously will then depend on kind of you know ca- capacity factors and other things, but. Sure. Um, and I don't mean to yeah. say like exactly, you know, you guys don't need to give me an exact number of acres. I just mean, for instance, is this something that's feasibly built in a suburb uh, just outside of a city like uh, with on-site generation? I mean, different from a hydrogen refueling station, obviously, which can bring in its own, you know, can have hydrogen transported to it. I'm just trying to get a feel for what it looks like to do an on-site generation. Is it something that has to be out in the middle of nowhere? I mean, Andrew, um, you know, we did we did some work for a client um, looking at this and trying to give them some contextual sense of scale. So hence why I was a little bit quiet because I was just doing some homework on it. Um, <laughs> we, If you took Cobham Hydrogen Refueling Station in the UK, which is just off um, one of the major motorways in the UK, the M25, it's a ring road around London for those who are not from the UK. The hydrogen refueling station that is on site by a Shell petrol station, it's co-located, is I think it's a 200 kilowatt electrolyzer that generates hydrogen on site for refueling. We estimated that probably slightly being a bit generous on the space. Um, we measured that at about 630 square meters. A similar size unit at uh, ITM's refueling station at the National Physics Lab in Teddington, which is again in South London, was bigger. That was around 800 meters squared. Um, but that's kind of in that kind of order of magnitude. You know, in a 200 uh, kilowatt electrolyzer running all day will produce... Well, they said the rule of thumb is a one megawatt electrolyzer is half a ton of hydrogen. So what are we talking about there? We're talking about 100, 120 kilos of hydrogen. So 110 kilos a day, five kilos a car, 22 cars. There's a lot of kind of complexity that kicks into this when you're when you're designing these things. So is it going to be astronomically larger? Like I said, probably the biggest footprint would be the the energy resource that would be attached. You know, if you're talking about many, many, many tons of, of, of required kind of uh, hydrogen, then yeah, like the electrolyzer will start to, to be a bit larger. But but you know, then it's a question of well, what storage uh, means are you using, right? What pressure you're under, et cetera, et cetera. These are design challenges. You can certainly you know have a smaller sized electrolyzer, and then re- you just have a higher uh, utilization rate, and you know you can potentially have a smaller footprint, right? And you know if you store under higher pressure, you could have a smaller storage tank. Well, I mean, except actually, I mean, you know, if we're on that, the one thing to bear in mind that we really haven't talked about, which is important, is that it's also a, re- a function of regulation here, right? I mean, a number of regulations are very strict on what the blast zone radius has to be for these things. And that also is a function of how much you're storing on site, not by, you know, is it pressurized, is it cryogenic or whatever, but just by volume. So in the UK, for example, there's there's various different regulations depending on the weight of hydrogen that you're storing on site. And that does have an impact on what your exclusion zone needs to be. So in some senses, if you look to the two examples I given you they're probably smaller simply by virtue of the fact that they are only producing at most 110 kilos of hydrogen a day you're not sort of talking about storing two five ten twenty tons of hydrogen on site but if you were doing something like nicola are talking about as patrick mentioned where you know you've got eight megawatt of electrolysis that's four tons of capacity to four tons of hydrogen you could be producing a day then you will need a considerably different scope for safety reasons and that will be requiring a lot more space and and, and this is where this gets a touch tricky, right? Because we're talking about different markets with different regulations, with different standards, and you know, not to go too far down the ra- uh, rabbit hole here, but like you say, exclusion zone versus footprint, right? So, how how big is the unit? What does it look like versus what are the spacing and and planning regulations around it? You know, like this stuff. 
the design will change, the size will change, the constraints on it will change depending on whether it is in a suburb, as you as you suggest, or whether it's in the center of a city. Right? Went all the way down the rabbit hole there, Andrew. I bet, I bet you're sorry you're asking that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, re- I'm horribly regretting that question. As, yeah, sorry. Guys. No, but, uh, but <laughs> yeah, it you, does. You let but, two hydrogen nerds get into yeah, it. So. Yeah, no, I, I, that was my fault. That's my my mistake, guys. I've learned my lesson. Uh, <laughs> no, you. But haven't. maybe not enough. Yeah, no, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit further, but uh, kind of target this question. So just very quickly, guys, before we wrap up, they keep coming up. And I just want to get to while we're on the topic of these refueling stations, do we have a timeline on Nicola? I think I asked that very early on in this podcast, but I'm curious, do we have a timeline on when Nicola is talking about rolling out or at least, you know, commissioning uh, the first handful of these stations? I've entirely forgotten, um, but I think that's maybe something we should ask them. (laughs) Hey, yeah, I know that Nikola did its first um, fuel cell truck delivery to Anheuser-Busch in uh, December of 2019. So the first fuel cell truck beer delivery ever uh, was made in December 2019. I obviously don't think they've done any of the infrastructure for that yet. I think a little bit like um, Craig discussed on the Toyota call, I suspect there probably was some um, case of bringing the fuel with them, or at least it was a fairly easy run through. But uh but yeah, I mean, you know, it, these things are starting to come off the line. I think it's more likely to be that the sites are kind of being developed now and they're building out the financing. I don't think they're going to break ground really until 2021 unless I've missed something. Well, and as we all know, nothing tastes better than uh, the king of beers when delivered by hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. So speaking of which, I think it's time for Patrick and I to go jump into the uh, the bar area here at our office. So uh Chris, we're going to let you go, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, I mean, next time we've got uh, Arup from the UK talking about hydrogen for heating. So uh, we're going to give our listeners a bit of a break from uh, mobility and move on to something else. All right. Sounds good, guys. Thanks for joining me, Chris. And that wraps up everything for everything about hydrogen this week. Many thanks to Black and Veach and Marilene Daviad Lewitt from Black and Veach out in California. We really appreciate her taking the time. And thank you all for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, as always, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast content. It really helps us reach out to a broader audience. Thanks again, Patrick. Thanks again, Chris. We'll talk soon. Cheers, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew.